When you do what you love, like running, like racing, like enjoying the great outdoors, you want to do it for life. Inside Tracker can help. Inside Tracker was founded in 2009 by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics. Using their patented algorithm, Inside Tracker analyzes your body's data to provide you with a clear picture of what's going on inside you and offer you science-backed recommendations for positive diet and lifestyle changes. Then, Inside Tracker tracks your progress every day, every step of the way toward reaching your performance goals and living a longer, healthier life. For a limited time, Fastest Known Time subscribers get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com/fkt. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Fastest Known podcast. I'm your co-host Hillary Allen, and today we have two special guests. Um, Kurt, actually, I need help on pronouncing your last name. <laughs> it's Snyder, just like it looks. All right. Well, we have Kurt. Snyder. All right, here we go. And uh, so many people, I mean, hopefully if we're, you know, the fastest known time, obviously this is not just in the world of running. I think it got its start, um, you know, in the world of, of cycling and especially um, bikepacking, um, this kind of self-supported way uh, through moving through the wilderness. And um, Kurt is one of the winningest um, ultra endurance uh, mountain bikers out there. I mean, just to name a few, he's got records on the True Divide, the Colorado Trail, the Iditarod, um, the Arizona Trail. Um, he's actually just about to go out for to, for an attempt for another another FKT on the Arizona Trail section of it. We'll talk to him about that. Um, but he also has a PhD in geological sciences, and uh, he's now the co-founder of Bikepacking Roots. And so we're going to kind of talk to him about that. And I have my other guest here is Kate Boyle, and she is the co-founder of the Bikepacking Roots as well. Um, she has a master's in um, environmental education. She's also a co-author. I have to mention that because um, she's a co-author of a book um, for, with the first one for it's kind of a guide to bikepacking. Um, so she has her own harrowing recovery story uh, from, you know, a car accident threatening her mobility for life to coming back and, you know, getting FKTs on the Cocopelli trail most recently this past fall and in, in 2020. Um, Kurt, you were also there. So sorry for the long intro, but I'm so excited to talk to you both. Hello. Hi. Hello. Nice <laughs> to be here. Here. <laughs> so yeah, I have so many questions about the bikepacking and just kind of First of all, let's start out with um, we're gonna we have a lot to talk about, but let's start out with why why bikepacking? Why is it rad, and why do you guys care about it so much? Well, for me, I came into bikepacking by way of other outdoor pursuits. I was in the field of adventure education for a long time. That's what I went to college for, um, and so backpacking and backcountry skiing, and I dabbled in my own longer distance trail running, um, and <laughs> never quickly, but committedly. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so those ways of traveling through the backcountry were just really always empowering and exciting for me. And that's what I d decided to dedicate my life to. And then when I started mountain biking in my kind of earlier mid twenties, I realized that if I carried my camping stuff that I could go further. And so I did that first on the Cocopelli trail with a 45 liter Alpine climbing pack. And I don't recommend you do that, um, but I didn't know any better. <laughs> and 
it is bearable to get hooked. Um, it is a bearable way of packing to get hooked on bikepacking. And so that from there, I decided that I wanted to ride across the country and bikepack the Great Divide mountain bike route. And at that point, there was bikepacking really spoke to me because you can go so far in a day. And then when you put days together, um, you can suddenly see dozens and dozens and sometimes hundreds of miles move underneath your own power at a pace that's really digestible. And so, you know, being able to spend just 30 days and go from Mexico to Canada is a pretty amazing way to kind of connect with the places that you're moving through. And for me, like I was, I've always been drawn to endurance sports through running. And that was kind of how I would breathe and think and kind of feel grounded. And then the technical sports like climbing and skiing always are just have spoken to me as well. And so mountain biking is really kind of that way of putting those together. That's awesome. I hope, I hope that tip about the backpack is made it into the guidebook. <laughs> I think it, it should. We'll have to make sure we're due for a updated edition. So we'll double check when we do that. <laughs> yeah. And I came into the world of bikepacking kind of from the opposite direction of Kate that I've always been interested in endurance sports and kind of drawn to that since, I mean, when I was 13, I trained for and rode a century on my road bike just because I didn't know what a century was. And then I found out it was 100 miles. I was like, oh, I bet I could do that. And so <laughs> a few months following some little training plan and did it. And it was fun, sort of. Um, and so it, I think it's kind of followed that progression of just like seeing what, what I'm capable of. And for a while when I was in college and grad school, I was focused on shorter um, racing, both on Nordic skis and then um, road racing and cyclocross quite a bit. And then I got tired of going around in circles on the cyclocross circuit year after year. And, um, somehow I don't even remember how I saw this, but there's a race at the time called the grand loop, which is one of the oldest bikepacking races around and does it's defunct now completely gone. But, um, the loop is out in uh, Western Colorado and Eastern Utah, and it's like 360 miles. And I saw the little crappy webpage for that event. I was like, Whoa, 360 miles like how do you even do that self-supported that's like days of racing and there was one resupply not much water out there and so like as soon as I saw that I was like I need to try that and um went out did it had a mixed experience in it like I finished it was really hard I like fueling was horrible on it I carried way too many cliff bars as fuel and uh I think it was last year. So this was the race was in 2008. And I think last year was the first time I could actually eat cliff bars again. Since that event, like that's how much they just completely turned me against them in that experience. And so I was like, I'm not, I'm going back to cyclocross. This is way too hard. And then uh, just like in, you know, in the week or two that followed, I was like, Whoa, I learned that. And I learned that I could go so much faster if I went out and did that again. And of course the next year I raced tour divide um, which is on the Great Divide Mountain Bike Route that Kate was mentioning before, and Arizona Trail 300, and kind of like since then, since 2008, um, racing ultras has kind of become my passion. And like Kate said, just the ability to move under your own power across huge swaths of landscape and experience it in a really unique way that you like you can't if you're moving on foot. Like you're just moving a little too slow to see things at that rate. Um, see mountain ranges like literally come and go in front of you and behind you over the course of 10 hours or a day or two days or mm. something like that. And it's such a different experience from driving through them um, for so many reasons. 
And so I do a lot of racing on, in that, in the bike packing style. And then also a lot of long distance, just tours, uh, at kind of the other end of the speed spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, this is the cool thing too, because with, you know, fastest known times, obviously I'm an ultra runner, but I've discovered cycling, um, or gravel biking. And so now I'm kind of like into, I've done a few like things of, um, you know, bike packing on my gravel bike, but it's not the most comfy, especially if you're going on some <laughs> there's no suspension except for your arms um and your butt <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> not the best. so you know um i think you know it, there's kind of this evolution of kind of how you can kind of get into these sports um whether i mean kurt you seemed very um just uh, curious and then they kind of jumped to both both feet like you know head first maybe um but uh or butt first on the bike but um, <laughs> i I think that's maybe more of the scientific nature too. I mean, um, since, you know, like curiosity kind of can lead you somewhere, but I see the trend happening. You know, there's several FKTs um, every year uh, submitted for, you know, running, obviously like many FKTs, but also they're combining running and scrambling or cycling and running. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think this is really cool. And one thing I wanted to ask each of you um and or you know one of you if you want to take this this uh, question is to kind of go about this the the style of 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 bikepacking like take the tour divide for instance um you know in in you know the running world we have and i'm sure in the cycling world as well you know you can um break it down from supported unsupported or self supported um and it's something that i really appreciate about appreciate about you know the ethos of events like tour divide mm-hmm. um kind of this self-supported, you know, you're moving on your own volition kind of through this, through this trail. Um, but if, yeah, you guys want to speak more to that. Yeah, that's a really cool question because as FKTs in the cycling world have been kind of booming really in just the last year with the pandemic um, and what that's meant for like racing, that question has come up a lot and it's easy to lose context of like where kind of the historical context of what, being self-supported or supported looks like in a cycling uh, bike race. And so generally for like tour divide and Arizona trail and each race has its own rules that then a individual time trial would follow. But generally the consensus is like to ride self-supported, you're carrying your own food and water. There's no caching. Um, You are, can resupply at any location that is open to anyone at any time of the year, more or less. And so like, that would be because we often ride through towns or like random tourist side mountain things like a market or a gas station. Um, You can buy your own food or refill water at spigots at campgrounds, you know, the things that are just like available to anyone. Um, And as far as like trail magic goes, generally it's kind of frowned upon. Like if you, if someone just randomly has no idea what you're doing and it's like, Oh, here, do you want a Coke? You could be like, sure. <laughs> um, but you can't ask. <laughs> and, Wait, do you call that real magic? Yeah. Like it's a pretty, I think it's a pretty common thing in like the through hiking world. Like people oh, well. just give you stuff, you know, <laughs> cause they're like, they pity you. They're like, wow, you're doing what you must need sugar. <laughs> and then you're like, I do. <laughs> been out here a while yeah totally (laughs) and so for the racing with like and so it's like with that it's really common on like the arizona trail or the colorado trail 
where there is this culture of like through hiking and through riding and people, there are actually like trail angels who like post up and are like, Oh, I have my cooler of Cokes for all the Colorado trail people. Um, and so the main thing with trail magic is just like, you can't count on it. You can't ask for it. And you definitely can't plan it. Like you can't be like, Oh, my best friend's coming and giving me an unplanned Coke. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but that's the general, uh, kind of ethos around the self-supported. And, and I think an additional line with that is like being an expectation, I think in, especially among the race promoters, but also in the community is just that you're ready to take care of yourself because we are riding on backcountry and remote routes and pushing the boundaries, just like in ultra running, like, you know, what sleep deprivation does and not only how it impairs your body, but also your judgment. And so I think the there is just this kind of expectation that we bring what we need to to take care of ourselves not just in like the best scenario um and we ride and make decisions in ways that we're not finding ourselves pulling out our spot tracker and pushing the sos button because we didn't plan well for water you know mm-hmm. yeah and the, well, in the bike world the um, the rules for, for kind of expectations and guidelines for FKTs really have evolved over the years. And it's been interesting just in the last like year, like Kate said, as like white rim FKTs have just suddenly become the thing to chase after in the mountain bike world. And some of the folks chasing after those didn't even realize that that's been a thing since like the early 2000s, maybe even farther back than that. And there were lots of debates back in the 2000s about like, what should the rules be? Should there be a starting point? Can you go in either direction? Is it okay to cash water? You know, all those things already were were discussed, and um, I think some things have definitely evolved. More recently, it's been like the question of like, is it okay to have film crews out mm-hmm. on these? And both the Colorado Trail Race and the Arizona Trail Race organizers have decided that that's not in the spirit of self-supported racing uh, because it is actually planning to have someone, a crew out there, and even if they're not directly supporting you, there's all these emotional, uh, well, can be both advantages or disadvantages depending on who you are and how you operate in that setting, but to seeing someone else that you know out there or seeing your film crew there, or just knowing that they're going to be up probably in the next 20 miles. And if you're pushing really hard and something goes wrong, like, you know, you have an out right there. Mm -hmm. So there have been, I mean, continuing uh, debates, discussions about exactly what those rules should be like, but it's not nearly as there aren't like the tiers uh, like you were mentioning in running with the self-supported supported that kind of thing. It's, it hasn't really become a thing. Like, I don't know of any of these trails or routes that have a record for a supported uh, well, mountain bike ride on them. It's all self-supported. Though the Massanutten Ring, which mm. is in the Backcountry Bike Challenge now, which we'll talk about at some point, I'm sure, that is a loop in Virginia. Um, and their their culture of FKTs on it have two categories. One is and it's kind of inverse of how we normally think of it. Self-supported is caching water. Um, and then unsupported is just carrying and getting your own water. So they have these two categories that that involve caching, but there isn't one with people meeting up. Right. Yeah. We kind of think about that and supported, but I mean, yeah, supported is like you, it's in my opinion, it's about, it's, it's kind of having like a race, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, kind of recreating a race atmosphere. You have aid stations. You kind of don't really have to um, carry much. You're kind of, kind of going mm-hmm. as light as possible. Yeah. Yep. And um, 
yeah, pers- I mean, so we do, you know, for uh, the FKTs of the year and every year I have a bias and, you know, I'm allowed to because mm-hmm. it's my opinion, <laughs> totally. but uh, I, I, uh, I definitely am, am biased more towards the, you know, self-supported. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, like the caching, if you must right? for something, for instance, on the Coca Pelli trail, like runners do that as well. It's not, it is, it was established as a bike packing route. However, you know, there are runners crazy enough to run that thing mm-hmm. and they <laughs> cash things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, I just yeah. remember two other kind of elements of the self-supported that, or related to running and maybe a little different one being drafting um, like in cycling drafting can be incredibly effective at like moving you along quickly and working together. Um, and racers can be racing each other and helping each other by drafting. Um, and so that's not allowed in races. Um, Tour divide would be like the one where it would be huge. You could probably go half like <laughs> one week. <laughs> if you could draft. Um and some like single track races would be a little less effective, but still the wilderness detour is like, it could be helpful. So we can't draft. And then the other one is just around pacing. Like we can't, and I don't actually know how pacing fits into the running FKT world, but we can't ha- arrange any friends to come ride with us or anything like that. And it gets interesting. Cause like on these big rides, like people want to go out and see, you and so it's common and so with that it's that like planned meetup and so i think it's generally accepted that you could be like oh hey like i'm gonna like you could just spontaneously show up and be like oh hey kurt you're doing great and maybe follow along for like a a couple miles but otherwise not to a point where like it's this huge um boost or aid and i think it's even like and people have different views on that for sure but yeah, and it's really interesting because yeah, I've watched like the so many of the Nolan's fourteen attempts, or not watched, but kind of followed along in the the stories of them. And that's like just such a mind-bogglingly challenging route uh, from my perspective. And you know, it's the role that pacers play in something like that is just like it's huge. And mm-hmm. not to downplay it at all, like that's you know, I think especially in a route like that, I would feel so much more comfortable with having someone else there, and then. Right someone to talk to. And then in the, the, the mountain biking side of things, you're just out there solo. Like you're completely on your own, especially if you're time trial, some route, like there's no one else there. And so you could be out alone for two days or four days or a week or something like that. And it's this whole other mental side of things that some people thrive and some people like really struggle with that, that part of it. Right. And especially for a route like Nolan's, um, you know, that's, uh, so like 14, uh, 14ers, um, Nolan's 14, it's, uh, you know, 14, 14ers in the Sawatch range, uh, in Colorado. And, um, so, you know, one way they verify it is so obviously like a GPX track. So I'm sure you have the same mm-hmm. thing for in, in bikepacking, um, you know, maybe something that'll last a little bit longer than just like a, a you know, a Coros watch or something like this. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, I mean, especially, so I think honestly with, with, with runners, the idea of pacing is, is definitely a part of the, um, the supported, right. Kind of recreating that race, mm-hmm. um, and especially for something like Nolan's, like, and it's, it's pushing, basically pushing the boundaries of like, you know, how fast can you go if you have someone who's kind of pacing you and, and like muling for you. Um, so I think it's a really interesting discussion. And I really just appreciate it in the bikepacking world that it's just kind of more bare, bare bones, like just more, um, I don't know, just, you're just kind of more on, on your own. Um, so, how, how oh, go for it. What? Well, I was just thinking, and I've never thought of this before, but I was just suddenly like, wow, like, I wonder how fast I could go on the Arizona trail supported. Like, 
And we have 24 hour races and hundred mile races and like all these other races that are supported. And I mean, it is crazy. Like, yeah, in some 24 hour races, like it is, which are fully supported, you know, like every lap you can have whatever you want, including a whole bike swap. And you undoubtedly go so fast and so far. And like my stop time in a 24 hour race versus an incredibly efficient multi-day ultra is just so different because like I have to loop my own chain <laughs> and I have yeah. to <laughs> get my food situated and like even just move it around on my bike. So it's accessible and refill my water. And when people do that for you, it, it would be really interesting just to kind of see what would happen if we had a supported ride on some of those <laughs> races. <Yeah. courses. laughs> It's kind of like, so there's two questions that I want to ask, but um, one is just kind of about the ethos, like the experience. Like I know through even hiking, running, and then riding a bike or driving a car through certain areas, it's just the, the pacing is different. And like you both mentioned at the beginning, cycling is a very efficient way and to cover, you know, sometimes mountain ranges, like ex- extreme amount of terrain in, in a relatively short amount of time. Um, but I wonder, you know, what the point is like if uh of if it were to be kind of more of a supported style right i think that would be hard harder um for mountain biking unless you're kind of on a circuit course right um versus you know like if you're i i think of you know supporting this uh, cycling events like on the road or like long distance kind of like you know tour de france mm-hmm. something like this um but yeah so it's, it's kind of like you know, the ethos of, of, of bikepacking and kind of putting yourself out there in the wilderness. I think it kind of, it creates this experience that, you know, you have to take care of yourself and you're more observant, maybe more, um, in tune with, with the environment and how exposed you are. I mean, Kurt, you're about to do a section of the Arizona trail and it's hot. Like, how do you plan for something like that when, you know, when you're responsible for, you know, pushing yourself pretty hard, but you know, you can't die from dehydration. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, part of it for that one is like knowing I have a pretty good idea of exactly where I want to be when and kind of planning out starting time accordingly so that I actually am doing some of the hottest parts of it in the dark. Um, that helps. Uh, I've ridden that trail a lot. Uh, I don't, I don't even know now. I've probably ridden at least 4,000 miles on the Arizona trail over the years, maybe well over that. So this will be like my, I think seventh time starting, maybe eighth time starting the 300 mile part of it down um, at the Mexican border. And so I have a really good idea for where there's water on there and how long, like how demanding each stretch is. So that really helps a lot. Um, But beyond that, I think a lot of it's just experience in the heat. And like, I know how my body generally tends to respond i know that warning signs like when i actually really do need to dial it back like if i keep pushing at this rate i'm definitely gonna melt and overheat and need to stop and just cool myself off so it's it's a lot of that like if it were any other course anywhere else i think in temperatures in the 90s i definitely wouldn't feel confident going into it and pushing hard so that's right and this is also a follow-up question so like uh I think that it's, it's so interesting because I mean, I've learned about, you know, bikes and I think they're, you know, they're amazingly efficient machines, but still things break when you're riding thousands of miles. So, I mean, has like one, I guess you can maybe tell me some kind of adventures or some stuff that you've gotten into. (laughs) I'm sure each of you have stories, but I would love to hear it, whether it's just from, you know, an experience standpoint of a beautiful trail, um, but also, you know, maybe shit hitting the fan and a piece of equipment breaking that 
is pretty crucial. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> so I mean, Arizona just eats tires alive. Like it doesn't matter. Why how, is this? It doesn't matter how exactly. good of a tire, how durable of a tire. Like the rocks are just sharp. They're loose. They're everywhere. Um, and I sliced a sidewall, and on the first five, like five hours into an Arizona Trail 300 race. Oh, and um. Which I'm now I'm just trying to remember when that was, but anyway, it was five hours into the whole race, and I sliced the tire and sat there, and with a curved needle and thread, sewed it back together because it was like an inch and a half long, and I mean that you can't put a tube in there, like it's just gonna burp out. Um, and so, yeah, I managed to do that and roll down to Patagonia, Arizona, and reseed it tubeless, and it held. It was unreal. <laughs> So that's my, I think that's my most exciting like shit broke thing. Yeah. Cause I think that's a, yeah. Yeah. I mean, compared to running, there's so much that can go wrong with equipment and it's, I mean, I think if you take care of your bike normally, like routinely, and then head into a race like this with, you know, all the kind of wearable parts like brake pads and tires and that sort of stuff with, with those replaced so that you can at least have confidence in those. You can cut down on the odds of things breaking but there's always things that can happen in crashes um i've had derailleur pulleys explode and chains just break and break and break again because conditions get so muddy um yeah there i mean there's a lot of that kind of stuff that is preventable fairly preventable but there's a lot of stuff that's out of your control and some of it you can kind of make do and make shift your way through and it might slow you down but you can at least continue riding or you know pedal out off the course and get get someone to pick you up and bail but there are certain things that just like if your bottom bracket bearings go out or if your hub breaks like there are certain things that they're just game ending there's like that's that's it and usually they're out of your control so it's just one of those things that you live with and cross your fingers that not today (laughs) and is it within the rules so if if something like that happens if you kind of go off course and um Mm -hmm like, you know, go to a, a bike shop, you know, I'm thinking of, um, you know, if you need extra parts or something like this, is that still within, within the rules? It depends on the race. Um, some year actually like tour divide, given the magnitude of that endeavor, it's within the rules that you can get a ride off course. Like if you have kind of catastrophic bike failure or medical issue. Um, so you can, you can mm. hitch a ride. Um, a lot of other races have like, as if you get in a motor vehicle, you're done. Um, so if you can get yourself off course to a bike shop, fine, but you have to get there yourself and then you have to get back to where you left the course and continue on. So for shorter events like the Arizona Trail 300, it's kind of, I mean, aside from when you're going through Tucson, then everywhere else you're just so far that it's kind of a moot point. But in, in the really long ones like Colorado Trail Race or Tour Divide, like then it can actually be advantageous to find a bike shop and, and get there um, and get whatever it is fixed. Yeah. But I think on that ethos note, like having just knowing that things could break and that you have to figure it out and same with the fueling strategy and the, your hydration strategy and your clothing and like your kit and like all of it is just part of this bigger piece of like, Oh, I'm doing this under my power. And that Mm -hmm. strategy and the planning I think is one of the things that for me makes that style of racing so fun because it just adds this whole other level of what you're how you're training and preparing like there's certainly the physical element of trying to set a fkt 
sorry, that's my dog. <laughs> um, he's offended. He's not here. <laughs> um, <laughs> so there's like, obviously the physical side of trying to set an FKT and the mental side. And then there's this whole other like technical side or strategy side. That's I think so fascinating. And, and that I think went all the times that I've not had success on in different FKT attempts, I've just continued to find things that I could improve. And that's what ultimately has led to the FKTs. And what are like name, like, yeah, what are some things that you've worked on like that? <laughs> well, I've worked, I think I've worked on everything. <laughs> I figured out how to get my body. I mean, like, this is what I'm saying. It's like, it's not like I spent so many times, like, you know, higher, like getting a higher FTP, which totally. <laughs> yeah, like, and ultimately, as you know, an ultra is like, yeah, your body does a lot of it, but ultimately, like, what goes on inside your head is like really what is going to dictate your experience and the success of it and the enjoyment of it. Yeah. Um, and so, I think for me, like, technical stuff that I've worked on is just like having really streamlined systems for packing and just not carrying too much. Cause like, I think with a backpack or I would imagine at least with a running vest, like you can be like, well, it's full. <laughs> like I can't, like, I'm not going to add a fanny pack in addition to my running vest, you know? <laughs> and so you're kind of limited by space, but with the bike, like you can have a shit ton of stuff. Like you can have a full bike packing setup and people do that. And like, if that's what you need to do to, go have the experience you're looking to have. That's awesome. And if you want to go as fast as you can, like your bike needs to be as light as possible. And so then there's this balancing act of like, well, do I bring a sleeping bag on the Arizona trail? I'll be out for two nights. I, am I going to sleep? If I'm going to sleep, do I need to be like, am I going to be warm enough not bringing a sleeping bag? And so there's like that sort of question. And um, so I think that for me, I've like figured out what I need for layers and a sleep strategy and then like what stuff I need to bring to support that um, to make my bike really as light as possible. Cause the other thing is like, I mean, I have to carry the same stuff as someone who's 200 pounds and relatively like that person has a lot more power and strength than I do being like 70 something pounds heavier. And so I think that they're, and having a bigger bike. And so that um, kind of strategy around like, how much I'm bringing to keep my bike light. And then the biggest thing, I mean, we could just have a whole, not just one podcast, but series on like the mental side of ultra oh, racing, yeah. as you know, <laughs> but I think that the main thing strategy wise is just the pacing. And that kind of goes with like the planning of the gear. Cause with, and I don't, I'd be actually really curious from your perspective if like runners do this, but in my experience, cyclists like go out really fast and it's so easy to burn a lot of matches on your bike power, like making powerful moves on, especially on trail. And so having just like a really dialed internal governor of mm. what your like your maximum power output is. And for that reason, like I race with a power meter and not many ultra racers do, I don't think. Um, I know Kurt does because he told me to, he was my coach. So, and still is in a lot of ways, um, <laughs> but that, that is just such a tool for making sure that I don't blow up in the first eight hours, which is when I know I'm going to feel phenomenal. Um, and so really 
having a pacing strategy that's in a way just takes like patience and being willing to be passed a lot and not starting in the front. Yeah. I mean, I think it depends on the runner. I, uh, definitely know my strength lies, um, like in the endurance. So I always just tell myself, I'm just like, okay, like see you at mile mm-hmm. like or something, you know, like I have this like mental thing that I, cause it's, 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 it's I'm a competitive person. So totally. it's hard yeah. for people to pass me, <laughs> but like, I don't have, I mean, I have like a, you know, a watch to like check my pace, but like, mm-hmm. I don't, I mean, we have power meters now on our watches, but oh, like, wow. Uh, <laughs> it's like, it, might, it might work. I mean, I have the, very like, many theories, but it might work for like flat ground on a road, like a, like a percent grade, like, okay. But if you're, you know, like power hiking, if you're on a, like a dynamic trail in any sense of the word, like no way. Yeah. Um, but there are certain, I mean, I judge it based on effort. So it'd be like, if you know your zones, like heart rate or kind of breathing, like an effort level. Um, I definitely think that, but, oh yeah, it's like so many people are just like, like, guns blazing like as soon as it's off the gun goes off or you know they, they start and it's like well that's not it's like no thy no oneself I feel like is the <laughs> totally better yeah. thing but yeah I mean you guys definitely that's a cool thing you can nerd out with bikes you can um you have a lot of cool data to work yeah. with it is yeah it makes it pretty fun <laughs> yeah and one other I think yeah. one other thing that Kate touched on is the the sleep strategy side and just how how important that is you know if you're doing a, a race that's like in the 24 hour range or 30 hours, it's pretty straightforward that you're probably not going to sleep. Uh, but in some of these races, when they stretch on to two, three, four, eight, 15 days, something like that, like then strategy becomes hugely important. And I've actually kind of stopped doing races that are longer than six ish days at this point, just because of the kind of physical toll that they take on, on my body. And I don't want to put myself through that um, these days, but for I think one of the most fun parts of like my progression in ultra racing was was years ago using the Arizona Trail 300 that I'm excited to go ride again shortly here using that as like an experiment that year after year and I think there's one year I may have raced it twice but year after year like trying different things as I got to know the course better knew my pacing better then it was like well let's try something different with sleep and see how that affects it and it wasn't really it an exercise in sleep strategy it was more like lack of sleep strategy. And, you know, at, at that time in the, wouldn't that have been like 2008, nine, 10, that period um, in the ultra racing world, there was kind of this thought that like four hours a night of sleep is going to be ideal because you'll be able to ride fast during the day still and get a little bit of recovery time. And if you sleep less than that, then you're not gonna be able to ride as fast during the day because you're not going to recover as much at night. And mm-hmm there wasn't really any research or anything to back that up. That was just a hunch that the community seemed to have. <laughs> and this community was like six or seven people. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's, it's not a community. This is a small club. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I, I started pushing that limit less and less. There's one other guy, Hefe Brenham, who actually just a couple of days ago set a new single speed record on the Arizona Trail 300. He's been at it for a long time too. And he's never slept. He just always has not dealt with sleep in these things and just pedaled, pedaled, pedaled. And for most of us, we're like, yeah, he's the only one that can do that. And kind of <laughs> shook our heads at him. And like, fortunately, these races are short enough that we can ride faster than he can when he doesn't sleep. But anyway, um, <laughs> I ended up kind of 
moving more in that direction of like, okay, what if I only sleep an hour a night? And then one year is like, well, now the record in this is down to like 48 hours, hopefully this year. Like, can I do that without sleeping? And then I did, I think I took a five minute nap the second night and like, huh, I'm actually fine racing for 48 hours with no sleep. And, Mm. um, tried a few others kind of longer stuff with minimal sleep that didn't work as well. And then last year I did one effort that was like, I think 54 hours with no sleep or like a 10 minute nap each night. And that was definitely like getting to my limit of when I like my focus just completely would break down, um, toward the end of that, but it's been a really neat progression and kind of realizing that there's a very discrete limit that beyond which, okay, got to actually be patient and stop and sleep and recover some. Right. I mean, speaking back to Nolan's 14, actually, um, I recorded a podcast with a friend of mine on this, this other podcast I do. Um, it's the train right podcast. We talked about mm-hmm. sleep and he, Nolan's has like a 60 hour cutoff. And so Teddy Bross, this uh, doctor actually that I talked to, he, you know, he had the same strategy, you know, for, for 60 hours, maybe he took two 10 minute naps. So I think that's kind of like the, the edge of, I know some people go more, but like these multi, these multi-day, um, you know, 200 mile on foot or, um, longer, um, actually there's Joe McConaughey right now. He's, uh, um, attempting the Arizona trail, um, record on foot. Cool. And so he's, you know, sleeping every night, um, like having big days. Um, so yeah, it's kind of, that kind of adapt, like the longer you go for quote unquote running uh, turns also mostly to like speed walking, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, it's mostly, it's kind of like a through hiker approach. Um, but, I mean, I asked so many questions about this stuff. I feel like we should change gears a little bit. And I wanted to ask you guys at least a few questions about um, this thing that you're co- that you co-founded. Um, so bikepacking roots. Can you tell me about this and then we can, you know, go down this rabbit hole? <laughs> yep. Well, in 2015, we were traveling to Patagonia, the area of Chile and Argentina, not Southern Arizona, <laughs> um, to go bikepacking for a month and we were just talking about how bikepacking was booming and we were seeing just kind of the impacts of that and people getting into like a new way of multi-day backcountry travel for the first time ever or and taking their bikes camping and a lot of the kind of way into bikepacking was through ultra racing which was really kind of weird like the Tour Divide and the Arizona Trail and the Colorado Trail Race all had like these such big impacts that that was like the bikepacking community. And there were people bikepacking who weren't r- racing, but it wasn't like as known in that way. Like, um, and so we just kind of saw an opportunity for there to be kind of a, a, an advocate for the sport and for bike packers. And so what we were kind of envisioning was creating using route development as a way of making bikepacking more accessible. Um, because people were riding on race routes and there's like so many more places you can go and race routes aren't necessarily like stewarded or kept up with when, um, in between like the races. And so, and sometimes they involve like private land and, things like that. And so we just thought that there could be a really positive impact by creating really well vetted intentional routes that give people a positive 
experience, an opportunity for positive experience bikepacking and connect them to the landscape. And the other piece of that was that as like essentially what would turn into a new user group, bikepackers, that we would at some point need or want a voice at the table and land management and making decisions and like having a voice and saying like, no, like we actually really value that section of trail. And like, it is important for us as bikepackers in connecting these like landscapes. Um, and, and also being able to say like, yeah, as bikepackers, like we do travel mindfully. Like we're not just downhill racers that are shredding on like trails that we dig with our own race. Like we're actually, <laughs> we're, the experience we're seeking is different and we have our own kind of desired experience as bikepackers. And we want to be seen as kind of our own user group in that way. And, and heard, um, as kind of respectful and responsible land users. So that was the vision. And we turned it into a 501c3 nonprofit in 2017. And Kirk can maybe talk about what it is now. <laughs> yeah, now somehow I'm the executive director, which coming from an academic background was a steep learning curve, still is a steep learning curve. There's lots to know. But we have, I think, about 7,000 members, mostly in the US, but scattered around the world at this point. So we've. It's free. Yeah. You can join. Yeah, anyone can join for free. We have a couple tiers of memberships um and this year we're working on well this got delayed from last year but rolling out a series of events around the country that are non completely non-competitive no fkt focus whatsoever um kind of community building events uh and get help helping get people out on their first bike packing trip or joining them and helping learn from them and helping them teach other folks and learn about the landscapes that we're in um if they've bike packed before and what else? We've got route development projects going on all over the country. We're just about to release a 800-mile route up in Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan. There's a route called Orogenesis, which is basically parallel to the Pacific Crest Trail, but it'll be a mountain bike focus or single-track focused mountain bike route that'll probably be 40% or so single-track uh, when it's done. And so that's a very uh, demanding project with a lot of connections that need to be actually like trails that need to be resurrected or built in some cases there's i don't know about a 120 miles or 140 miles of non-existent gaps in the the route that need to be built which is pretty impressive considering it's like a 3500 mile long route that there's only you know little bits that are missing to, to make it into something <laughs> connect, that connects uh, and some really cool projects on Navajo Nation that we've been working with a nonprofit up there on for a few years. Um, and then what last year we rolled out a BIPOC bike adventure grant program, which I just sent off the first batch of grant checks today and connected a bunch of folks with equipment um, and had a few mentoring sessions with, with those folks to help them get out. Most of them are doing um, gravel road tours as most of them, it's their first ever kind of bike adventure trip and they're not all doing overnight stuff, but most of them are. Um, and awesome. so if there are any listeners out there that are interested in learning more about that program or potentially applying for it, we'll have another application window later this year. And you can find more about that at bikepackingroots.org. That's R O O T S.org. <laughs> yeah. And we'll link all this stuff to the show notes too. Um, but yeah, and so what is the what's something that you most recently launched? Uh, what the end of yeah, last week. Um, so the backcountry <laughs> bike challenge is a project, um, of Kurt and mine separate from bikepacking roots. Um, 
as athletes that are passionate about kind of self-supported ultra racing. And in response to kind of the pandemic last year and just seeing people in the cycling world kind of excited about setting FKTs on different routes, we were like, well, one, we, this is how we've been racing for a while. (laughs) And that's awesome because people, and it's awesome and more people should do this. And maybe it's not that enticing for people to be thinking about racing for a week or two weeks or three weeks across a country or a state and a shorter, more attainable, but still like big route could be a really great way to kind of access that sort of experience whether it's chasing an FKT or just setting your own goal to ride the whole route in multiple days under your own power or in multiple days supported or whatever way. And so the back of your bike challenge is just a collection of what we think are like world-class backcountry bike routes. Right now they are all mountain bike routes. Um, we don't have any gravel ones right now, but that could grow. <laughs> um, and so there's about a dozen of them. And we've just put together the information um, for folks to go ride them. So if you go to the website and find a route that you want to ride, then there's all the information about it, like how where it is, how far it is, where there's water, what kind of ethics currently exist on that trail. Um, so they're both as far as like minimal minimizing your impact, but then also like if there's an FKT culture around it, what you need to know about it. And so for like Cocapelli, it says... Like we start at the Slick Rock Trailhead and end um, at the Coca-Cola Trailhead in Loma. And then for this Massa Nut and Ring, it talks about those different styles of supportedness or unsupportedness. Um, and the other piece of this that just like in running, um, like these, or at least running on trail, <laughs> these experiences aren't possible without trails. And these trails don't exist without organizations and people who steward them. And so a big part of the backcountry bike challenge is connecting people's experience to the stewardship side. And so each trail we've identified the organization that uh, we understand is most connected to stewarding the trail. And we just ask that to participate in the challenge, which is riding the route um, and then donating any amount of money. It could be $2, it could be 200, it could be 2000 to the trail. Um, And if you submit your ride uh, through our website and like, with Ride With GPS, um, you'll be entered in to win some prizes at the end of the year from our sponsors, which include some pretty rad ones. <laughs> um, and we also, the other piece of this, like just like with running, like we don't own the FKTs and like fastestknowntime.com doesn't own the FKTs. Like we're just trying to like create a resource to inspire people to go ride these so that when they are like, oh, well, I want something to train for like on my own agenda like what is out there and it's not just white rim and cocapelli that there's actually a lot more (laughs) um because you don't have to just race in central utah (laughs) um and so with that we're hoping we're we're planning on growing it um right now our map is really western centric which is mostly because that's where our experience is and for our own planning for riding these routes this year because that's like Mm -hmm also somewhat selfishly like we're like oh this is a great opportunity now i have like the whole list of all these routes i want to go ride um and race like my best on that day and so yeah and there's we'll grow there's some super cool routes on here that i'm really excited about that so kate mentioned cocopelli trail is on it 
and the grand loop that I mentioned earlier, which was that defunct bikepacking race, that loop is on there, which includes Cocopelli and the Paradox and Tabawatch trails. Um, and that one's mainly there because there just wasn't any resource for the information out there anywhere on the internet, which was kind of wild. So that's kind of... And because Kurt's obsessed with I, it, that's really why it's on there. <laughs> you go ride it and you'll be obsessed like, okay. with it too. It just, it captures people. Um, and then what, there are a couple of routes in the Midwest. There's the Duluth Traverse, which is not backcountry at all. It's right above town, but it's an awesome route. And the organization of the town have put so much energy into putting together this like 45 mile route um, of single track right above town. And then the Mata Hay Trail in North Dakota, which is out on the plains in the Badlands above the Little Missouri River. And that one's about 150 miles long. Hmm. Um, what The Wyoming Range National Recreation Trail, which has a ultra on it, which I think this year will be the first year that it happens. Um, the running. Yeah, running ultra. And it's a very... You should do yeah, that. It's a very, very backcountry trail. Like if you think the Colorado Trail is gorgeous and challenging... Wyoming Range National Recreation Trail takes both those up like several levels. Yeah. Um, I'm writing this. It's, <laughs> it's unreal. I mean, like we have bikepacked like in Patagonia and in the Alps and in New Zealand and like just amazing mountain ranges in the world, like, like the Colorado Rockies and the Wyoming Range. And I mean, it is incredible. And the crazy thing is so close to the Tetons and you're just like, I mean, you can see them. <laughs> And yet I mean, there's like, we were out there for five days and didn't see a person when we biked. Yeah. Wyoming is a place that I just want to, I want to move to. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> but also just a quick interjection. How do you bike pack in the Alps? It is so steep. You just <laughs> have to your bike up and then roll yeah. it down. Oh my oh, God. Fun. Well, so that's funny because that trip was in 2014 and we were on hard tails with two by 10 drive trains and no dropper post like that people were barely mountain biking with dropper post then and yeah and like that is actually one that at this point in my life I'm like I want to go back and one do that route again and continue it because we went from Nice to Zermatt and then rode north to Zurich and that was 800 miles and I had 200,000 feet of elevation gain And we only did half the route so that we had I, sort of envisioned doing. Like we knew we wouldn't be yeah, able to do the whole thing, but we wanted to do a traverse of the whole length of the range, which ends up being like 1600 miles by tr- mostly trail. And we did, we did half that. Wow. So that is a goal to get back and finish that traverse. Oh, but I, I would say, yeah. What? No, I was in NC for, for this past year. Um, and so I had a, a bike packing route, but it was on gravel bike from NC all the way down to Nice. So slightly different. Cool. Um, but I mean, the freaking the gravel roads there can just get gnarly. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, like turn into cobblestones yeah. among grass. Um, like but I think, think I have. <laughs> yeah, I think the key to that is having like the easiest gearing you can imagine. Like, I mean, on a one by, I'd put like a twenty-four tooth chain ring with twelve speeds behind on it, and mm-hmm. I did not have that. No, we didn't either. And that's what I would do if I went back. And then again, yeah, like packing light and just making your bike like as hike a bike friendly as possible Mm -hmm. and your shoes and your arms ready for that. Yeah, do push ups for months ahead of time. (laughs) But it's so worth it. I mean, you know, it's probably similar to the running. You're like, oh, wow, that's really hard. And it's like so beautiful and so fascinating. You know, like the mountain culture there is so fascinating cool yeah 
Oh, man. Oh, the other uh, way you get through it is you drink cappuccinos everywhere. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> they're cheaper than the water. <laughs> that is so true. That, I mean, yeah, Europe does make, you know, running and bikepacking so much easier with, like, the, <laughs> yeah. uh, like, fully, you know, like, you go, like, 10K from the city, you feel like you don't see anyone, and then you see this, like, you know, fully functioning, you know, refuge with, like, gnocchi <laughs> yeah. and, like, you know, wine and, like, yeah. oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, it's easy to say really well-fueled and caffeinated. <laughs> Well, I want to mention one other route on the backcountry bike challenge that may be of particular interest to the running audience in this. And that one is sort of in the spirit of Nolan's. It's called the Colorado 14ers loop. And this is one that um, the, well, the idea for this route came about from my friend Scott Morris years ago. And he and I and Esther Harini went on a ride called the semi-rideable 14ers tour which was seven of the most rideable 14ers in Colorado that are bike legal. And there's only like, I don't know, 18 or something that are bike legal and a bunch of those. Well, our definition of bike semi, no, our definition of semi rideable was I think at least 40% rideable. (laughs) So that was, you know, if you're on a 14 year, that's kind of what you might expect. Um, and then, so Esther ran almost all of them and beat us by a lot. Scott and I rode them, um, with our bikes, which took a lot longer. And then we pedal on to the next one camp and then take it out the next day. And so it was like an eight day, very exhausting tour. And that evolved into one of the first, um, bikepacking routes routes that we ever put out. And there's, it's the main route itself is like a gorgeous 200 mile, um, loop with lots of very rideable single track if you don't want to actually do the 14ers along the way. So there is that. That's just a great uh, kind of mellow Colorado bike packing loop. But for the backcountry bike challenge, uh, the goal is to either ride the loop itself or ride the loop with the 14ers. And then there's categories for folks that want to bike the 14ers or the more reasonable folks that actually want to do the 14ers on foot and just stash their bike at the bottom. So Kate's excited for that. I think I'm excited to take my bike on them again. And it's a little more reasonable now because it's down to five 14ers instead of seven. There are, there are a couple with um, some access challenges, um, pub, private land that the Colorado 14ers initiative is working on securing access. So we're not going to include those um, on there, even though plenty of folks are hiking um, some of those bits. We don't want to actually send people there in an organized um, series like this. But yeah, so that's one that we'd love to see some folks from the running community that may have mountain bike inclination to link between all of the 14ers take on this year. So we're going to be hounding some of our friends that fit that description and see see if we can get some of them. And the other right. one that will be getting added that kind of mix, makes the running-biking hybrid is Whole Hump, um, which people run, and it's about 100 miles. And, I mean... The thing, the, so it goes from the bottom of Grand Canyon to the highest um, peak in Arizona, which is Humphreys, and just outside of Flagstaff in the Kachina Peaks. And the landscape between the rim of the Grand Canyon and the peaks is like pretty flat. And so I know that there are runners listening who are like, well, that's no big deal. I'm, I can totally run that far and be unfazed by just this looming <laughs> volcano moving towards me at five. I don't know the right <laughs> speed, but whatever. Or you could run down the South Kaibab Trail, turn around, run or hike, uh, back out, get on your bike, and ride that like 80 miles across the the plateau, um, which is beautiful. 
at like 10 or 12 miles an hour, maybe even 15 (laughs) and uh, then run or hike up the uh, Mount Humphreys. So, and the elevation change from that is, I think it's like 4,000 to 12,000 feet or something like that. So 4,000 down in the bottom of the Canyon and 12 something up on. I think it might be closer to five. I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure. But yeah. Oh man, this, I mean, I, yeah, I, I hope, I mean, I think, you know, cycling and running, it's, you know, it's a lot more runners are getting into cycling. I think it's really cool to see the um, combining of the sports and to put that into an FKT. I think you can get more creative, you can cover more ground. Um, Yeah. And I think it just, yeah, I was super excited to talk to you guys about this because I think uh, the ethos is very similar, at least to the style of things that I like to do for, for, for running or FKT. And yeah. Um, and yeah, unless you have any other kind of last minute things you want to add, I've taken up a lot of your time. So thank you for it. And yeah, it was such a pleasure. I feel like I could have, you know, we could have a podcast series. So, you know, maybe if listeners like this one and they want more from you, they can comment and <laughs> you can have you back on. <laughs> yeah, that'd be awesome. Thank you so much for having yeah, us. Thanks, really. It's really fun yeah. to just compare worlds of you know, moving under our own power. Yeah, awesome. I agree. <laughs> And oh, one last thing for Kurt. Good luck oh, on, your, on your FKT attempt yeah, soon. Hopefully, between the heat and my ailing ankle, things go well. Do you want to share that story? Cool. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. So, well, you know, once this is up, uh, hopefully we'll have your, you know, your, your results for this. So we can, we can follow along for you. But once again, thank you guys so much for being on. It was such a pleasure. <laughs>